Wow. <clears throat> we are definitely ready to talk about freedom right now. It is my earnest conviction that everyone should be in jail at least once in his life. <laughs> and that imprisonment should be on suspicion rather than proof. It should last for four months and it should seem hopeless. And preferably the prisoner should be sick at least half of the time. Only by such imprisonment does he learn what real freedom is and what it's worth. Gordon S. Seagrave actually said that. In this month so far, I've talked about family and faith. And today we're going to talk about freedom. And it's important that we talk about freedom as Christians because there's a belief system out there where people think that if you're a believer, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, that you can't be in bondage or that Satan uh, can't tempt you or that you can't be bothered by him. That if you're a Christian, the devil can't touch you. And that note of freedom, I remember reading about a war. It had been fought years ago. It was the bloodiest war in our history. A president was assassinated. An amendment to the Constitution had been signed into law. Once enslaved, men, women, and children were now legally emancipated. Yet amazingly, many continued living in fear and squalor as though it had never happened. In a context of hard-earned freedom... Some slaves chose to remain as slaves. That's what we do sometimes as Christians. We, we are free, but we choose to remain slaves to our sin. I, I know that we're owned by God and, and we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit when we're baptized and, and we're freed. But I also know that Satan attacks believers and he can get into the areas in our lives and, and he can create in our lives bondage or, or a stronghold and he just won't let go. That's where we're headed today. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray that as, as we continue to unravel this word freedom and as we wrestle with things, words like bondage and stronghold and as we really open up ourselves to your word, I pray that as individuals, we will look closely at our lives. I pray that as we open up today, we will see the, the areas in our lives where we allow Satan to get in, and we will, we will also see how desperately we need Jesus. I pray that you will just open us up to your word, that you will give us the strength and the understanding uh, to not just hear it, but to apply it and to change who we are so that we can be a reflection of you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The, the thing about Satan being in our lives and being a part of our lives and being around the fringes of our lives is this. If we can find out how he gets in, then we can find out how to get him back out. So as, as we get ready for this, I want you to turn to John chapter 10. And we're going to bounce throughout Scripture today. So go ahead and just get your fingers warmed up for the flipping exercise, because you're going to be doing a lot of this. Or if you're on your Kindle, you'll be doing a lot of this. You know. Um, but John chapter 10, <laughs> let's warm those up. Here we go. I'm going to start in verse 10. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy 
I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief, Satan, comes to do three things. To steal, to kill, and destroy. But if we back up a bit, we can see how he gets in. In John 10, 1, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. Notice those words, climbs in some other way. The thief is trying to get in some other way. He can't get in the door, so he's looking for an open window. He's looking for a crack. He's looking for a weakness. And and before we get to the good part of my sermon, we have to talk about some of the ways that we let Satan get in amongst us. So it's going to get a little uncomfortable for a minute. Some of those ways that he gets in amongst us go all the way back to Genesis and and Exodus into the Old Testament and, and what we call generational curses. So go ahead and turn back to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read from verses 5 and 6 as you're turning there. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's going to visit the iniquities to the third and fourth generation. Well, that's not fair. I'm third and fourth generation. Some of you are third and fourth generation. It's not fair. You're right. It's not. Thousands get shown love and mercy in the third and fourth generation get iniquity. Why would God do that? Well, he tells us he's a jealous God. There are a lot of things I don't understand, but, but I want you to think about this for a second. This is God saying uh, to the Israelites, and we need to take heed of this. He's saying to them, I am a jealous God. I want you. I want your affection. So I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Why would he do that? Why would I suffer for the things my father did or my grandfather or my great-grandfather? Because he wants us. He wants us to take that iniquity and and it's going to frustrate those generations like mine. So that we'll turn back to God. He tells us the reason is because he's a jealous God. You see, there's a difference between iniquity and transgression. They're both sin. But iniquity is in the heart. Iniquity is is the inward motivation and transgression is the outward movement. And so you need to kind of to keep a thought process on those. Iniquity is the inward motivation. Transgression is the outward movement. Iniquity is is kind of like just an an inward bent, if you will, an inward motivation that that we're raised up in. Some would say we're born with these iniquities of our fathers, our great grandfathers and our great great grandfathers because they're passed on to us. Now, I'm not talking about original sin and all that. I'm talking about what happens in the families that we grow up in and why things happen the way they do. That's, that's what I'm talking about here with iniquities. It, it goes kind of like this. If you think about it, there are problems in your life that you've struggled with. There are things in your, in your family's history that everybody just, just has an issue with. And you don't know why. You've just always struggled with those things. Other people say, well, that doesn't bother me at all, but this does. And, and we're dealing with things in our lives that were set in motion before we were born. Now, let me give you this example. And you kind of got to stay with me on this. I stay away from drinking alcohol. And here's why. I come from a long line of alcoholics. 
I joke around and, and, and say that I come from a, a distinguished line of alcoholics because all the men in, in my dad's side of the family were like fire chiefs and, and, you know, head of departments of transportation and things like that and, and, and held prominent places, if you will, just in business. But man, as soon as the, 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 the alarm clock goes off and work is over, they're having a six-pack before they get home. And so I come from a long line of, of alcoholics. It's just what the men in my family have always done. Every family reunion, Christmas, every Thanksgiving, every birthday, no matter if you were celebrating your youngest or your oldest, if somebody wasn't drunk, it wasn't a party. Holidays, they weren't social drinkers. These people, my family, grandpas, uncles, cousins, even some of my aunts are alcoholics, were. Most of them have passed away. Now, whether you say it was learned behavior or hereditary, and I'm not even going to get into that today, but there's a lot of social argument about that. Either way, it's still an iniquity that I will deal with and struggle with the rest of my life. I learned in my younger days that I have the same tendencies, so I just don't start. And some of you are like, well, that's not an issue for me. I can go have a beer and it doesn't bother me or my friends at all. That's good. But if we all go around the room... What your issue is, mine isn't, okay? So you can take whatever it is, and that's, that's the iniquity. That's what we're talking about. Now, let me share this. I'm going to open this up a little bit farther, a little bit deeper, because I don't think I've danced around on your wounds just enough yet. I want to share, share, with this, share this with you. Another type of iniquity is lust. Lust is an iniquity. Adultery is a transgression. You see how that works? Lust can be in your heart. But you, you may never transgress with it. Now understand, they're both sin. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've done it in your heart, you've done it. So they're both sin, but understand this. The reason I'm telling you about it this way is that sometimes adultery is the sin or the transgression and lust is not the iniquity in the heart. It's insecurity. And so if you, you grew up like that with that insecurity and there are people who try to satisfy that desire and that acceptance with sexual means, whether it's on the internet or with lots of people, it doesn't matter, but it happens, and it happens in our day and time, and it happens, and it attacks our kids, and it attacks our families, and that's where it starts, and that's why I'm talking to you about it today. So if we're going to move away from these things, we have to get to the root of the problem. We have to understand that, that the iniquity, that, that the root of the problem is the iniquity. It's the heart. It's not just the outward action that we see, and we have to understand that. I, I want to show you a picture from the Bible, and, and I mean with words, about this, about iniquity on the inside and transgressions on the outside. So just think about this for a second. Isaiah 53 says this. It says that Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. A bruise is inward bleeding on your body. It's an inward bleeding. And he was wounded for our transgressions, which is an outward wounding. He was bruised on the inside for our inward sins. And he was wounded on the outside for our outward sins. We've got to come to a place where we can deal with these iniquities and we can realize these iniquities in our families and then we can deal with them. I want to look at Isaiah. Back in Isaiah, the people are asking God, why are all these bad things happening to us? And here's God's answer. Isaiah 65, 7, he says, Both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. Says the Lord. So if the iniquities of our forefathers don't affect us, God could have just said to them, your sins are why you're going through this. 
But there he calls out the sins of the fathers also. So what do we do about it? What do you do about the sin that's maybe been in your family for generations? Because we can't really get to the freedom part until we talk about that whole being in jail for four months and being sick for half of it and really appreciating the release that we have. What can you do? What can you do to get away from years of abuse, physical or sexual? What can you do to get away from, from those things that have happened, the alcoholisms and the addictions that have happened generation upon generation of your families? I have a thought about that. What we need to do in this situation is the same thing that we do with sin in our own lives. First, you need to confess it. Not stand up here and talk about how horrible your family was and, and, and all that. But we need to confess this sin. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to repent about it. We need to repent about the sins of our fathers. That's our job. Husbands, if your family is known for things, take some time with God. Ask Him for forgiveness for the mistakes of your father and your grandfather. Ask that your kids will be freed from that. Ask that you could be freed from it. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Leviticus 26, 40 says this, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility towards me, I will remember, we jump down to verse 42, it says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Nehemiah 9, 2 says, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Jeremiah 14, 20 says, O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. Let me tell you what we need to do. We need to go before the Lord. Husbands and wives together, go before the Lord and confess. Ask forgiveness as a representative of your family. Repent and confess your family's sins. Everything you can think of. Ask for forgiveness for your sins and the iniquity of your fathers. Ask for forgiveness. Now listen, you don't have to do this to get to heaven. Okay? Understand that. That's, that's, not, that's not where salvation comes in. But remember this. Forgive means to release. Forgive means to release. And that's what I'm shooting for here. We allow Satan to keep us in bondage because we don't ask for release. We keep turning back to those things. We need to get it out there. Ask for forgiveness because it means to release. We need to ask the Lord to release us and our children from the iniquity and the sins of the ones in our families that have come before us. Another way that we let Satan in, another sidebar where he comes into our lives is unforgiveness and bitterness. Man, bitterness can destroy us. It can destroy families. It can separate churches. Bitterness can just wipe out generations of families. Unforgiveness. It's the one that gets most people. You can't imagine how many people are walking around with unforgiveness in them. As I talk to people, well, I, just, I just can't let that go. Well, that's too bad. As Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, the man who doesn't forgive will be turned over to the tormentors. Why would God do that? Why would he turn us over to the tormentors? 
Because he wants us to repent. If you walk in unforgiveness, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your kids. It's going to destroy your life. It's not worth it. So when you make that decision to walk in unforgiveness, God's just going to turn you over to the tormentors and they're just going to like beat the snot out of you until you change your mind. You're like, whoa, God, I don't like this. I'm going to forgive. I want to be free. I want to be released. Understand, if you have a bruise in your life, Jesus can heal you. But you have got to close those doors. And you can't close those doors if you don't confront what's at them. You have to close those doors. You have to look back over your life. (laughs) That's all right. That is awesome. I was scared for a second. (laughs) Ooh, I was checking my pockets. That you, God? <laughs> oh, you've got to look back over your life. You've got to see what the, what's at those doors. And if you're leaving them open, it's just going to circle back around and you're never, it's just going to continue. That cycle is going to continue of, of iniquities in your family for the generations that follow you. We've got to shut those doors, people. We have to close the doors of bitterness. We have to close the doors of addiction. We have to close the doors of unforgiveness. We have to close the doors from the past that keep us separated from God. As long as we're holding on to past sins and struggles, we are giving Satan the opening he needs to be in our lives. And that makes it difficult for us to see the real Jesus. So the first part of this message was tough to write, and I'm sure it was tough to hear. It's about how Satan gets into our lives, and I think, I think we've got that pretty much covered. We know how he gets in, but I want to see what happens when we allow the real Jesus to stand up in our life. And you're probably thinking, the real Jesus? We'll get there. As we transition into who the real Jesus is, we also need to realize, and we need to remember, that we cannot play on the devil's playground and not get hurt. It doesn't work that way. Turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And while you turn there, I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4. I'm multitasking here. Go ahead and turn to Luke 4, 16. And we're talking about the real Jesus standing up. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4. Paul writes this. He says to the, to the Corinthians, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches as Jesus and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's saying, This is my fear, that you will just put up and accept with whatever comes your way. The the shiny gospel, if you will, or the acceptance gospel. You will just accept it. And then it affects you. And you just accept it. There's one Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, one. So how do we know which is the real Jesus or, or who Jesus is or, or what he really does? This is what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is Jesus' first sermon in his hometown. It's not his first sermon, but it's the first one in his hometown. It goes like this. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. As he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Real quick, back then, they preached a little differently. They stood and read the scriptures, and when they sat down, everybody knew they were about to turn it up a notch. Okay? So he sits down, everybody's focused, and he begins saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, a lot of people, they stop right there and, and, and talk about Jesus. And I think when you look at the whole text, because it's kind of funny to me, in verse 28 and 29, it says that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. His first sermon in his hometown did not go over very well. Okay. Preachers, we can relate to that. It happens sometimes. The reason it didn't go over well is this, because Jesus said to them, this is who I really am. I am the Messiah. I am the real Jesus. I'm not a carpenter. I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah of the world. And and here's the thing. This was a messianic prophecy, and they knew it. And he said to them, today the scripture is fulfilled. The Messiah is here. This is who I really am. And you know, it puzzles me that people have the same reaction today When we tell them who Jesus really is, they don't want to know the real Jesus because the real Jesus requires change. In order to have freedom, we have to do things. We have to have change. We seem to have this connotation in our minds of who Jesus is, but but this is who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one. And now that we know who the real Jesus is, I want to talk to you about what he does. First off, he saves He brings salvation. But the thing about salvation is this. It's both personal and public. Jesus says in what I just read that he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. And we're not talking about the financially poor. He's talking about the poor in spirit. His primary reason for coming was to bring salvation to the poor in spirit. And salvation is personal because you have to accept it. I have to accept it. Your parents can't do it for you. You can't do it until you understand that you need salvation and no one can offer you salvation except for Jesus Christ. It's personal, but it's also public. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It's public. And and that is not a one-time confession. We should live that confession. Some of you are saying, well, that's hard to do. I, I often struggle with my faith. I don't think the Holy Spirit's working in my life. Or I feel spiritually weak sometimes. I struggle with my relationship with Jesus. Well, there's a terse part of me that says you're not struggling. You just stopped living your confession. You see, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept Him as my Lord and my Savior. And if you've done that, we need to live that. I've shown you who the real Jesus is. I've shown you how we allow Satan into our lives. The problem is here in reality, for some reason, we're more comfortable allowing Satan to come in the side door than we are in answering the front door that Jesus is knocking on. Whoa, Fat Rock, that's harsh. How can you say that? 
I know you're thinking it. I can see it in your eyes. My response to that is, seriously? Don't make me name names and point fingers here, guys. (laughs) The truth is, we aren't struggling with our faith. We aren't struggling with our relationship with Christ. We aren't struggling with our spiritual strengths. We aren't struggling with going out, serving, and representing Jesus. Because the truth is, is most of us have just stopped doing those things that we need to keep spiritually strong. We've stopped doing the things we need to do in order to maintain a solid relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't think the Holy Spirit is working in your life, it's because you stopped communicating with Him. He didn't go anywhere. If you don't think that Jesus is making a difference in your daily life, it's because you stopped living your confession. If you want to see God's vision in your life, you need to read His Word. You need to meditate on it. You need to pray over it. You need to ask questions when you read, God, how can this apply to my life? Well, I do my devotions every day. That's nice. Devotions are nice. I have nothing against devotions. I do devotions every day. But here's the problem with daily devotions is that they usually consist of just a few scriptures and then a full page of someone's thoughts about those scriptures. You see, we need to read the Bible because the Bible consists of scriptures, which are God's thoughts and God's directions for our life. We make things like win, commit, grow, and go harder than they really have to be because we aren't willing to invest ourselves in Jesus first. Of all the people that I talk to and I talk with about life, family, and friendships, and parenting, and finances, and getting married, and just living a life that reflects Jesus, the reality is if we turn to our Bibles first, if we turn to the real Jesus first, All these things are revealed in God's word for us. How do we prepare for marriage? How do we take care of our finances? How do we take care of our families? How do we live a life that reflects Jesus? How do we do? All those things are there for us. But I figured out why we do these things, why we allow Satan to get in through the cracks and why we look past the real Jesus. And and I've actually labeled it. And it's what I like to call spiritual ADD. We get going through life, and we start out real strong, on fire, baptized out of the water, just tearing it up for Jesus, and we get going through life, and we get caught up with things, and we forget one simple thing. We forget that we are redeemed. We forget it. That's the biggest problem with Christianity today, in my opinion. We forget who we are. We forget that we are redeemed. If we are truly honest... These words from this song reflect in our lives daily. It's a song by Big Daddy Weave. And it's called Redeemed, and you can find it on YouTube. It, goes, it starts out like this. Seems like all I could see was the struggle. Haunted by ghosts that, I, that lived in my past. Bound up in the shackles of all my failures. Wondering how long is this going to last. Then you look at this prisoner and say to me, Son... Stop fighting a fight that's already been won. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I will shake off these chains, wipe away every stain. Now I'm not who I used to be. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. We have seen how Satan can get into our lives, and we know that Jesus is here to battle that. We cannot forget that we are redeemed. Don't sit down. 
Everybody else go ahead and stand up. We're, we're wrapping this up. You know, it's simple. I love, I love that. I'm a, I got a new name, a new life. I'm not the same. I hope, a hope that will carry me home. It's simple. Keeping Satan out, following the real Jesus, we just have to remember who we are. We are redeemed. We have to remember that God plus one is a majority. Actually, God on his own is a majority, but, but for our sake, <laughs> when you're in that spot, you forget that you're redeemed. God plus one is a majority. Draw your strength from him. It doesn't matter what everyone around you is doing. It doesn't matter what Satan is doing around you or in your life or what he is tempting you with. The only thing that matters is that you choose to honor God. It doesn't matter if your family has given up on you. Honor God. It doesn't matter if someone has walked out of your life. Honor God. It doesn't matter if you're struggling financially. Honor God. It doesn't matter if you found out that you have cancer or whatever. Yeah, those things matter. They strike us to the core sometimes. But reality is, honor God. The other day... um, one of Dylan's injection sites was infected. It's the first time that's happened for us. It's kind of ugly. It was all swelling up on his belly. And I'm, I'm working on it, and I had to draw a circle around it because we have a track to see if it gets bigger because if it does, he has to go to the hospital. And um, So we're doing our thing, and he says to me, sometimes I just wish I was a normal kid. I told him, yeah, but normal people don't do extraordinary things. <laughs> I said, no matter, no matter what, all you have to do is honor God. And then he says this, he goes, I know, I just have to be the greatest man of God of my generation. No pressure. (laughs) But that's what I've been telling him since he was little. He's like, can I be a fireman? Yeah, just be the greatest man of God of your generation. I don't don't care if you're a doctor. I'd rather you not be a lawyer, but you know. (laughs) Just do those things. Just honor. (laughs) Honor God. That's what I tell Dylan all the time. Whatever you do, just honor God. It is so simple. He got it. And I don't know what's keeping you down. I don't know where you're at. But it's time to shake off those chains. It's time to close those doors that have been haunting you for past generations. Those family secrets, family burdens, family sins that you've been carrying. They're not yours to carry anymore. You want to see the real Jesus in action? You start shutting those doors and start asking him for strength and courage to move forward every day. I don't know where you're at. If you're ready for baptism, we're ready. If, if you need some prayer so that you can step out and say, you know what, I need strength and I need prayer and I need some accountability in closing those doors, the elders are here. We'll pray with you. We'll, we'll share with you. We'll encourage you. Maybe for you, uh, that step is to partner with us and to impact this community. Whatever it is, don't leave here today carrying all that stuff from the past that is not yours. Leave here being a new person, however that looks for you. We're going to sing one more song.